When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It is the Final Word Cricket Podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, Season 15, Episode 24. Uh, another big show. I said last week it's been a while since we've had a long show and I promised a short one. We will see how we go today. There have been mm-hmm. lots of going on, goings on. Uh, that would be plural. Goings like, on. Like Governor's yeah. General. Governor's General. Uh, Attorney's General Courts goings Marshall. on. Including Glenn Maxwell making his fourth ton for Australia in Fifth. the space of nine hits. Uh, which is oh, quite sorry, I thought staggering. you were talking about T20s. No, no, we'll get to yeah, that. There's lots of, lots of maxi mm. numbers, the T20 series. Otherwise, the Australian under-19s men winning the World Cup, the women winning their one-day series 2-1 after we had a chance mm-hmm. to talk about the uh, the series-leveling win from South Africa last week. Some county cricket news, some stuff going on in India, quite a bit going on in India, actually, ahead of the third test at Rajkot. Hello to you, Jeff. Hello to you. Um, yeah, we'll, we're, we're going to keep our feet to the floor and see how fast we can charge through this show. Uh, Jeff, uh, you've got something here in the notes that I feel like I should just throw straight to you on because I have no idea what it is, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Uh, there's new AIS guidelines on concussion. Um, let's start there. Yeah, this is interesting because we obviously we've talked a lot about concussion in all sports. I mean, it's, it's a big issue in every contact sport and cricket with the amount of head contact and Will Pekofsky story and all of the rest of it. Um, so this is the, the Australian Institute of Sport guidelines that have that, that were put out oh, about a couple of weeks ago, I guess. So it's a joint position with a bunch of different bodies. So Sports Medicine Australia are involved. It's also a joint thing with UK body and a New Zealand body. So the uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sport broadly in the UK is behind this and the New Zealand Accident Compensation Corporation 
and so the AIS is is one of the arms of the Australian Sports Commission. So it's a government body. It's it's these aren't binding regulations, but I assume they'll be taken as binding in say AIS programs and that sort of thing, or probably anything that's. Australian Sports Commission funded would probably end up being bound by these guidelines would be my reading of it. So the interesting part of it is is that it's it's taking a much more cautious approach to things. So the the guidelines say for under 19s players they need a minimum of 21 days out of all playing at or contact training after a concussion and they also need 14 days after any symptoms have cleared so it's 21 regardless of when your symptoms clear but if your symptoms linger for more than a week then you still need 14 days after those symptoms uh, after your after your testing clear and and for over 19s their recommendation is a 10-day minimum um, after the clearing of symptoms so uh, it's something that I think could have a really big effect on the way that sport is played, given the way that we see players rushed back, given the way that a lot of sports have these protocols. What was it for Maxwell in the World Cup? Seven days, I think, mm. that they had. And so that would have included some some symptomatic time. If these sort of guidelines were in place, then, you know, players would, would be missing sort of two weeks minimum, that that sort of thing, and which is seen, you know, the, the, the medical science that they've got behind this report is backing up that that's the right way to do it and that... that um, sporting codes will have to be much more cautious and much more conservative in treating concussions. It's going to have significant knock-on effects. Yeah, right. So is your impression from reading through this that Cricket Australia will be bound to this because it sits underneath the Australian Sports Commission through the AIS or will they have flexibility to sort of pick and yeah, choose what they see Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, they're not, they're not sort of strictly, I suppose there's there's a certain fealty owed to the Sports mm. Commission. I mean, they're a tax-exempt body, but they're kind of allowed to operate relatively independently. So I, I suppose I suppose what it does is set a legal precedent that if you're a sporting league and you are not complying with the recommendations set out by the relevant government body, then you leave yourself much more open to legal action in the future. Okay. Yeah, watch this space because you're right, in major tournaments, 14 days could, you know, well, a T20 World Cup more acutely. Mm. Um so that will, I expect, affect uh, how we interpret cricket. So a, a watching brief on that one. You mentioned Glenn Maxwell before for more upbeat news than talking about concussions. Uh, I, I said that he scored 400s in his last nine hits for Australia. You, you add it all together. So this starts mm-hmm. creatively, of course. You always do some creative accountancy when, when cranking these sorts of stats out. But from the, the, the 100 against Holland, the 40 baller, He's made 597 runs at 119 at a strike rate of 186 in the four centuries. Mm. Holland, the 201 not out against Afghanistan, the match-winning 100 uh, to finish his trip in India, the T20, and then the one last night, 55 balls for his 120 not out. It, it's sort of difficult on nights like that when watching it not to reflect upon the travesty that has been his misuse as an all-format player. Um, you, you see how other countries have been so keen to embrace and harness their short-form talent mm. and make sure there's room for them in test cricket not least the way that India have used the IPL as a way of bringing players in at Test Cricket as well. And Maxwell's always wanted that, and that was the direction, the path he was on uh, roughly 10 years ago now. But, uh, yeah, mm. fell off the radar from roughly 2017, never to be seen again. There have been opportunities. There was nearly a chance in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, and there might be one this time next year when they return there for two Test matches. And I know it's not all about Test Cricket, and he's had a perfectly fulfilling white ball career, and I don't want to brush over that, a three-time World Cup winner, who knows, they might win the T20 World Cup in, in June and that could be a, a fourth trophy for him uh, as a, an Australian uh, senior player. But still, it does great, but it does feel like there was some headroom mm. there that, um, that hasn't been utilised entirely. 
Unsurprisingly, well, unsurprisingly for you, I, I was writing a piece about this today where I was <laughs> um, crunching the same numbers and coming to pretty similar conclusions without actually having had this conversation with right. you. So we, we, people won't be surprised to know we're fairly much on of a similar mind on this. But I, I think particularly, and what I ended up coming to at the end of the piece, is particularly right now where he's got the backing of team management, which is something that he hasn't had the luxury of. Like he's always been regarded with suspicion. He's always been like, there's this kind of idea in Australia that if you play that way, it's sort of witchcraft and it can't be trusted. And what's he up to? And he's too erratic and, and, and he's, he's unreliable and all of these sorts of things. So that every, every um, administration, if you will, since he came onto the scene, you know, you're going back so a dozen years really that he's been around as a prospect. Uh, they've all they've all been drawn to him. They're all fascinated by him, but they're also a bit scared of him. And they're like, well, you can't, oh, you can't put him in a in a test side. What if? And so at the same time as people are massively celebrating Travis Head for the way that he goes about his test cricket, there's still this idea that well, you, you couldn't play Maxwell in a test match. Why not? You know, why not see what happened? He's never played a test in Australia. That's the bit that really grates. Not once has he had the use of an Australian surface with those truer pitches and, and the ability to hit through the ball sometimes. So it just seems to me that given he's actually got an administration that does back him, that's why he's in the form of his life. That's why I think, you know, that's why he's, he's playing so well because he's so comfortable, he's supported. The captains across formats, Cummins, Marsh, whoever's in charge, love having him in the team and back him completely. You saw the way that Cummins captained him in the World Cup. Ronnie McDonald obviously has a similar sort of view that that Maxwell has to be there so this is this is the last sticking point for me why hasn't that transition to this administration having the imagination that the previous ones lacked to say well put him in now see what happens because if you've got it's like the Kawaja thing from a couple of years ago when when you've got somebody who's absolutely red hot that's when I think you need to worry a bit less about your long-term planning or whatever it is and say this is the right pick for the moment put him in let the rain off and, and, and see how they go. Yeah, I think in the short term, if they were to pull a stunt like that, it would feel like a stunt, right, because of the lack of red ball cricket. And that's the, the other mm. side of this, that he doesn't play much, if any, red ball cricket due to his calendar. It would be at the expense of Cameron Green. So there's that uh, a guy mm-hmm. who's 35 who you're trying to squeeze the sponge and get something special out of for a few years against someone who there's that long-term investment that's clearly going on, right, the fact that he got promoted to number four yeah. in that Windy Series. Kawaja came squad. back at 35. Oh, look, I'm not, I'm not talking down the argument. I'm simply saying that, and look, there's a few things here. First of all, what you described there, he is super happy. Remember that you know, Glenn's mm. taken time out of international cricket only, well, four and a half years ago when he wasn't happy, when things weren't all aligning, when things were misfiring. And you can't divorce that entirely from the circumstances of that dressing room. So that was the towards the end of 2019. There was nothing wrong with his cricket then per se. He won a mm. game against Sri Lanka, if I recall correctly, like two days before he decided to sit out for six weeks. So it wasn't a, a cricket decision. It was a personal decision, but the two things have to intersect at yep. some level. So hearing him last night on Stump Mike, you know, basically commentating his innings, he looks so at ease. He plays a bad shot. He says to the bowler, well bowled. Yeah, some people may not like that, but it does indicate that ease he's got at the moment. And the panache, I mean, the way he plays, he had 109 metre six last night that was barely remarked upon on commentary. And I'm not being critical mm. of the commentators. It's just we, we price this in when watching Maxwell that he will hit a ball 100 plus metres like it's not even a thing. Yeah. The switch hit that went 90 metres the other way, again, it's a, it's a, it's a highlight that gets replayed over and over again, but how many people can switch it 90 metres? Yeah. Um, there are probably three or four of them ever 
in the history of the game, certainly those who have come through the uh, white ball revolution. So, mm. yeah, th- th- it does feel like if it's going to be, this is the right time. And the last point on schedules and red ball cricket, I know he doesn't play a lot of it, but he might get the chance to play a bit of it later in the year. I've been going through it uh, myself and, look, he'll be in England playing white ball cricket in September. There are four rounds of the county championship in September. Can there be some creative scheduling there? At the start of the red ball season in Australia, in all probability, there'll be five or even six shield rounds before the first India mm-hmm. test match. Can he play a month of shield cricket? It's, it's improbable, but... Is there a way of engineering a situation where he can play Mm. a bank of red ball cricket in relatively quick succession that could get him into a position where he could be selected for the Border Gavaska Trophy Series, which will start in the final week of November? So it's a long run up between now and then. A lot would need to go right, a lot of cricket to be played, and almost all of it for him will be against the white ball. But yeah, you wouldn't rule it out because of what's coming. The India team, who he knows back to front, followed by the trip to Sri Lanka on surfaces that they will prefer him on um, for whatever reason, or I suppose because he's played so much in India and they they make that equation with Sri Lanka. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make this all about uh, Maxwell's prospects being selected. This Australian team have gone wonderfully over the last couple of years since Cummins and Bailey have been picking it with McDonald. But I think, um, yeah, it does, it does bring that conversation to the surface once again. They have a little bit of... A window there, don't they? Because they're playing in England in September, but yeah. I don't remember there being any white ball stuff. Normally there there's a white ball commitment somewhere in October, November, the wipes out the start of the Shield season. I don't believe there is. I had a look in the mm-hmm. FTP. I don't think there's any white ball. I think that the white ball series they shoehorn in is the England one where they're playing like eight white ball games right. in September. And look, maybe that doesn't work that, you know, that idea of him playing a couple of county rounds. But I'll tell you what, if you're one of the counties mm-hmm. who are – either trying to uh, stay up in Division 1 or trying to win Division 2 or trying to win Division 1. There'll be three kind of categories of sides who have very live rounds at the very end of September. Who better to bring in than a than a, uh, you know, than a match winner like Maxwell uh, for that final stretch? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there'd be no shortage of suitors. Yep, it was interesting. Um, a lot of people getting into Marcus Stoinis for his less um, exciting innings to the other end, which I, I thought... A little unfair. Uh, I mean, yes, I know he's, he hasn't had great returns for quite a long time now, but that specific innings, you're just turning the strike over right, yeah. and just giving it to Maxwell. Playing his role. Yeah, but but Tim David did so more dramatically, 31 off 14 at the end, so that partnership was 95 off 39 balls. The Stoinis partnership with Maxwell was 80-odd 80, 80 that they put on in quick time as well. High-scoring game. Windies weren't that far off chasing it, to be honest. Um, you know, Going after 240, Nicholas Purin, three sixes in a row off um, Kruder and Dorfmeister. Um, Jason Berendorf, 114 metres, one of those. I mean, the catches going down in the crowd, the ones being held. Spencer Johnson taking a couple, exciting for him. Stoinis took wickets too, which needs to be noted. And then Andre Russell coming out and hitting his first three balls for four off Spencer Johnson, 37 off 16. It was it was, it was fun stuff. It was uh, carnage. And then Jason Holder at the end just lamping them as well. So um, and, and the captain as well, Rothman Powell, 63 off 36. Um, I liked his, uh, his comment after the game about Maxwell. He says, well, you bowl a ball uh, on the leg stump, he tends to have a shot for that. You bowl a ball outside the off stump, he tends to have a shot for that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. That that ball is squeezed out. The uh, I don't know who was bowling. Mm. It might have been Ansari Joseph. The York, yeah, sorry, it was was, was Russell. Was it the the in swinging yeah. Yorker tailing towards middle and mm-hmm. leg, and he somehow found a way to middle it through backward point uh, in that way that he opens bat. up the blade um, at the last moment. No follow through. As I said on commentary once with him, his wrists don't lie. And now again, that's that's something that it's so hard to execute. He makes it look normal, so it barely gets remarked upon 
had it been someone else. And both games took a similar rhythm to the first game down at Bell Reeve on Friday. Australia made 200 plus. David Warner, who is back in the side having missed the one day, has made a brisk 70-odd. And then Tim David, as he did in the second game, he made 37 from 16 in the first game. And then the Windies you know, came close to chasing it. Jason Holder made 28 in a hurry right towards the end. But um, yeah, so Australia win the series 2-0. But it's been entertaining, competitive and controversial as well. I, I missed the end of the game with the run out that wasn't because there wasn't an right. appeal. I was busy doing something else. Let's be honest, I turned off after Maxi batted. Tell us what happened there. <laughs> okay, so that was the throw coming in. Was it Holder running to the non-strikers? Then Spencer Johnson takes it backhands onto the stumps. Batter's short, but Johnson doesn't appeal. Marsh has th- um, had the throw in. He doesn't appeal. He thinks that the batter's just got home. They kind of go, ah. Oh. Um, and then, you know, they sort of hang around for a while. And after... 15 seconds or so, whatever it is, the the replay comes up on the big screen and you can see that he's short of his ground. So at that point, the Australians come in to, to the umpire, to umpire a boot, and they're like, well, what you know, what doing? He's, he's out. And the umpire's like, yeah, but you didn't appeal for it. So <laughs> I can't give it because he didn't appeal. So th- this was this was interesting, right? And, and so there are, there are two parts to this. One is that the Australian, you know, Tim David particularly arced up about this. He was like, I appealed. I'm pretty sure he's fielding at deep point. So I'm going to say it's a tree falls in the forest situation. Mm. If you appealed and the umpire didn't hear you, then you didn't appeal. That's that's how it works. You have to make sure you get an answer. And so there was no answer given because there was no appeal heard. But yeah, obviously, you you know, people listening to this show know that we like arcane laws kind of stuff. So this one's interesting because so at the point the umpire says, look, basically says you lot piss off. Um, he, what did he say? He said, we're getting into really poor territory here. Get on with the game. And, you know, I, I support an umpire in their, their right to say that, you know, I've made a, a decision and here it is. But the interesting thing here is that he hadn't made a decision. And I think, I think he got confused with DRS protocol. I reckon that's what happens on the field because as you know, if you appeal and the appeal's given not out, you've got 15 seconds. But if a replay should come up on the screen within yeah. that 15 seconds, you can't send it upstairs after mm. that. That's, happened in that's, the, um, that's an error. That happened last week in the, in the women's game at North Sydney, didn't that, where right. Australia wanted uh, yeah, Australia wanted to refer one. Yes. And the, the, the replay had already gone up and they lost the ability to do yep. so. Yeah, so if the scoreboard operator or the replay operator stuffs up, then you can't subsequently send it up for a review. But that's in a situation where a decision has already been made. In this case, no decision's been made because no appeal's mm. been made. So... The replay goes on the screen, and I think umpire Boots says, well, you've seen a replay, so therefore you can't appeal for it. That's actually not correct. So I looked through the playing conditions, um, all the ICC stuff that I could find, and there's nothing about that because they haven't actually appealed yet, which does raise an interesting point where you could game the system if you, had, if you could train your team to not appeal before you've had a conversation about whether you think something's out. So if you think there's like an, an LB that's a good shout or whatever, but you don't appeal, you just run up to each other and have a chat, then you wouldn't be bound by the 15 seconds. You could spend 30 seconds talking it over with your team and then turn around and say, how's that? And at that point, the umpire can say not out and then you know that you're already going upstairs because you're allowed to appeal until, until the bowler's running in to bowl the next ball, you can appeal. So technically at that point, the Australians were still entitled to appeal and at that point, the umpire would have then had to give a, a response. But I think he's got the DRS protocol in his head, which says you've seen a replay, but that's not actually relevant at this point. I'm looking forward to seeing it gamed. We spent some time on story time on the weekend talking about um, mm. Law 24.1 and uh, an unusual way that was 
able to be appealed for in a, in a run-out context. Well, if this happens, I'm sure all hell will break loose and we, we like days like that on the World Wide Web. You could game it so well. So if say yeah. you do it, say you, say you don't appeal and then you just kick stones around for 30 seconds and wait for a replay to come up on the screen and then you see a replay and then you go, okay, well, he's nicked that, that's caught behind and then you can appeal for it. Yeah. And so you're allowed to appeal after seeing the replay and so... If the replay came up, then teams would be able to use that. All I remember is that time in Bangalore in 2017 when it was Steve Smith who, mm. I think it was Smith. Was looking at the dressing room. Yeah, Smith was looking towards the dressing room. Hanscom was down the other end, I think. And this is the final day when Australia were chasing 170-odd and fell short due to Ashwin cutting sick and taking six for 12 in a spell, I think, from memory. And um, Smith looked towards the dressing room and there was – the suggestion that he was wanting the teammates who were watching the screen live to give him a hint as to whether he should review or not. And he described it famously in the press conference. I say famously, you know, on the internet, this comes up all the time from Indian fans, the brain fade. Uh, so, um, yes, anyway, there's, there's a bit there. Just want to come back to that first T20 before we move off and get on to other things. That The first game, so I mentioned Warner made 70 from 36. Inglis, more runs opening. Um, uh, get ready for it. Josh Inglis is Australia's new opener. Poor uh, Travis Head will um, slot in somewhere, but they're going to go left-hand, right-hand with Warner and Inglis, aren't they, um, ahead of the World Cup. Anyway, I digress. Zampa in an incredibly high score scoring game where 415 runs have been made in 40 overs, takes three for 26 from his four and wasn't player of the match. Batter's game, mate. Mm-hmm. Batter's game. Can't have Batter's won a game. player of the match when when Zampa's bowled them to, to victory. Anyway, one more T20. That's on Tuesday in Perth. This will probably come out on Tuesday. This episode, so you can plug into that. Then they're off to New Zealand for three T20s. That's a pretty strong squad as they ramp up towards the World Cup in June. And uh, yes, that's the 21st at the Cape Tin in Wellington, followed by the 23rd and the 25th at Eden Park. I'm looking forward to seeing some gigantic scores with the straight boundaries there, the uh, the series in, mm. or the tri-series in the drop kick in 20, 27-18, which I was over there for when there was scores over 220 each time a team batted. So that will be fun. Uh, speaking of New Zealand, Jeff, the Australian Test Squad has been named. Michael Nisa is back in. As the age Twitter feed said, he'd beaten off the younger generation uh, to keep his spot, which I think we both independently of each yeah. other quite enjoyed that formulation of words. But, yeah, so Nisa hmm. gets the spare bowler spot. Other than that, it's it's same old, same old. I wonder who would play if... You know, Josh Hazelwood stood on a cricket ball. Do you think it's Boland or do you think it's Nisa? Because pecking order mm. Boland, but Boland who, you know, got pulled out of a shield game last week with a niggle, which is fine. He's allowed to, you know, I'm not saying that should um, move him a cog down. Nisa hasn't had quite the same returns this summer as he has the last couple of years. But, I, you know, with the extra batting, of course, that Nisa provides and having um, improved in, in that facet of the game, now he's in the squad. Yeah, I, I do ponder what would happen if uh, if they needed that extra bowler, if that were the case in Wellington or Christchurch. Batting and swing, I mean, there's there's that temptation. It's like the seductive false idea of New Zealand being all about swing bowling as opposed to the reality that you probably want Scott Boland to bash the seam and, mm. and stand it up on pitches that aren't going to do a whole lot. True. Um, so, yeah, the inclination might be to go Nisa, but it's hard to resist that that extra batting as well. So Matt Renshaw's the spare batter in the squad as well. So 
much as it was towards the end of the mm. – it was the West Indies series, wasn't it, where they've got that insurance policy with Renshaw that if one of the openers goes down, well, he slots in there or if it's a middle-order player, that's where he was the last time that he played for Australia in the middle of the year. So we'll be both over there. I join you in Melbourne next week, which starts with us at, at that Sports Commission Awards. We mentioned them earlier. We're up for that um, podcast gong there at the MCG. So, I mean, we won't win it, but the very fact that we're in the final four is a nice thing. And then we'll head off to New Zealand a couple of days after that. The first test match begins on the 29th of February, unusual as that date is, followed by the second test at Christchurch on the 8th of March. Jeff, before we uh, go to our first break today, uh, let's find some time for... A little bit of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the fun game that we play with nice people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions of a currency of their choice in a number of their choice. The number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it means. Nerd pleasure today. And this is this is very fun. So sometimes things just come together. Sometimes things just work. So Tanya Winteringham mm. is is one of our oldest, one of the very first people who signed up on Patreon, one of our most long, long-term supporters. We, we've never met Tanya, but we've corresponded plenty over the years. She's a New Zealander. And I was emailing with her earlier today only because she was wondering if we were going to do some sort of event in Wellington, which we will aim to do, some sort of meet up over there, probably in Christchurch as well. Oh, also, by the way, if anyone's got a spare ticket for the um, for the test in Wellington, let us know because Tanya wasn't expecting it to sell out. <laughs> and so she lives locally, but she's missed out. So um, get in touch and we'll see if we can get her into one of the days of play. Well, so, while you're doing that, find a second one for Paddy McKeon is going to be over there as well. Hasn't got a ticket okay. either. So we need two final right. word tickets for Wellington. I'm pretty okay. sure we should be able to rustle them up, Jeff, if all, uh, all things play the way they usually do with these things. But still, if we can sort it out amongst our patron community that would be mm-hmm. lovely yeah if Tanya and Pat can sit together then they'll yep. have some company for the day um, so completely independently of this I had a couple of emails back and forth today and then I was like cool time to get ready for the show better research a nerd pledge went into my list and top of the list is Tanya Winteringham so it all it all just came together and, and it gets better so the number is $4.40 it's okay. in New Zealand dollars and um, you, you just wait tell them the clue and, and I'll tell you the answer Okay, uh, here's the clue. I've updated my pledge. Yes, you did get it right on the second time of asking. I think I forgot to confirm. This is her, her previous pledge. No clue, aside from the currency being the correct one, have a frolic. So 440, but in NZD. Jeff. Right. So I'm looking for a 440. I'm looking for a New Zealand connection. I'm thinking 440 sounds like a team score in test cricket to me. That's the most natural feel for that sort Mm -hmm. of number. And what do you know? Almost every 440 that's ever been made in test cricket involves New Zealand somehow. I don't know how this happened, but either made against them or made by them against somebody else. So I was chalking off what it's not likely to be, not likely to be getting smashed by South Africa in Cape Town in 95 when Hansi made a ton. Probably not the narrow loss at Trent Bridge in 1973 which we've talked about before when New Zealand made 440 batting last, 38 runs short, one of the great fourth innings chases. Bevan Congdon made a, a huge hundred. Probably not the draw at Old Trafford in 1949 when England made 440 for nine. And Martin Donnelly, that uh, that glimpse of a, an incredible player who played so little test cricket but was so good, was playing there. It could have been the draw in Georgetown in 85 because that was a bloody good result against Marshall holding Ghana um, after conceding... 511 in the first innings, Martin Crow making 188 and New Zealand making 440. But where I couldn't resist going back to, because it all just came together, 1930, Adam, in Wellington. 
What are ah. the what is the likelihood on the day that I'm talking to Tanya about getting her into a test match in Wellington, her number comes up on the list, and I did not fudge this, it genuinely did, and this number is the 440 that New Zealand made in Wellington in the second test they ever played yep. in that series that's being played at the same time as the Caribbean Tour yes. when you've got two England teams playing when Andy Sander makes the triple hundred over playing the West Indies at the same time as New Zealand are playing their first couple of tests in their history. Can I tell you something about that? So I'm recording story time later today with Daniel Norcross. Um, spoiler, spoiler, it'll come out after the Radcott and Perth test this week. So we're doing daily shows all the way through and then there'll be a story time from Daniel and me. And um, how about this? So that that tour comes up and I use tour rather than series. So 29.30, I did not know that England came to Australia in 29.30. On the way through to New Zealand, hmm. they played every state team. So they played yeah. six first-class games starting in Perth on the 30th of October and they played in Australia through to the middle of December this is um, germane to the answer that I'm going to give on a mm-hmm. really, really interesting dusty old bastard that'll come up at the end of the story time 170. But yeah, so that they had, I mean, don't you love it? Now we talk about, is there sufficient time to get a tour game in before a high profile mm-hmm. test series? Now then a uh, hundred <laughs> years ago or near enough to a hundred years ago, they'd play an entire first class fixture in a different country or round of fixtures before dipping over to their primary business, which in this case was the, the first mm. test matches that New Zealand ever played. Please continue. They were probably getting a cut of the gate um, of the New South Wales games and all the rest of it. Anyway, so England have pretty much a second-string team because they've got this other team in the Caribbean. Uh, uh, but even so, they win the first test handsomely, even though they only make 181 in their first innings. So New Zealand are on the ropes. They're three-day test matches. They've been pumped in the first one by a not very good team. And then the opening partnership of Stewie Dempster and Jackie Mills put on 276 for New Zealand. They make 339 on the first day. I mean, obviously getting more overs in than we're used to, but still good rate for the time. Frank Woolley is there for England at about age 62, taking seven for... They're all out for 440 on the second day, our number. And they get a lead of 120 when they bowl out England for 320, but they drop some catches and they, they should have had England for a much lower score, let them off the hook really, which means that New Zealand have time to bat into a, a strong lead of 285, but not enough time to bowl out England. They've only, they only end up bowling 39 overs on the last day. Roger Blunt is playing in this game, a favourite New Zealand character of ours. Light him up, Roger. Um, Roll in another. The, in the tradition of Dion Nash and Stephen Fleming and, um, and other great spark hunters of the peninsula. The peninsula? Island, two islands. It's not a peninsula. Whenever I hear that, I, I think of that Afro man when I get high and start of it. Roll another Blunt. What an anthem it was back in 2001. Um, I suspect one hit wonder. <laughs> uh, very much so, very much so. The other player in this game who I didn't know anything about, Adam, is a player named Dad Weir. He's on the scorecard as Dad Weir, D-A-D. But he's in inverted commas. Now, we've seen like your monkey Hornby types where your nickname is so common that it gets on the scorecard. But I've never seen anyone's nickname in inverted commas on the scorecard before. No first name given, just dad. So I looked into him and he was an all-rounder who bowled what they call slow mediums, um, as in, you know, doing not much with the ball um, and, and batted reasonably well. But everybody called him dad. Like from a very early age, because they said he was losing his hair at a very young age and he just looked older than all of the other 22 year olds. So they all just started calling him dad. And for the rest of his life, everybody called him dad. And it was a long life. He lived to 95. So hang on. So on scorecards in the same way that we might see a monkey hornby or whatever. 
He's dead. He's dead. So it's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Kelly. <laughs> okay. So hopefully his life went a bit different to uh, the architects, and um, uh, yeah, uh, hope he didn't end up at. Um, where was Betty from again? Um, Walgett. 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 Anyway, mm. I wonder if Walgett Putting, still um, makes tourism money out of Betty being from, you know, the secretary, she should call herself on Hey Dad. I hope so. I hope it still has like a sign there somewhere. Putting, um, remember putting white out on the computer screen. That was, that was the greatest moment. Anyway, Dad, um, Dad Weir uh, became New Zealand's oldest living cricketer. He lived to 95, so he really lived up to his name of Dad. Anyway, he, he played for... Played first-class cricket for 20 years with a little bit after World War II. Anyway, the point is they draw this game, but all of this is just a lead-up that brings us to Alice Hall. So the third test in Auckland gets washed out and they replace what's supposed to be a tour game against the Auckland team with a fourth test match just because you could do things like that in those days. You could, you could be creative. And Alice Hall is a young woman in Auckland uh, who got into cricket playing in a schools team in the early 20s. Um, she ends up getting involved with the local Auckland club and she starts doing the scoring and she starts doing some scoring for some other club sides. And later, as her life goes on, she becomes basically the statistics czar of the Auckland Cricket Club. She does all their historical record keeping. She organises their honour boards. You know, she she is in charge. She, she has all the books. She knows everything. But all of that's much later. So in 1930, when this game is on, the third test has two scorers listed and one of them is absent for the fourth test for reasons unknown. So alongside a very old and distinguished and famous scorer named Bill Ferguson, Alice Hall, at the age of 19, does the job of the second scorer. She's the first woman to ever score a test match and she did it at 19 years of age. Um, She goes on to marry a test cricketer named Paul Whitelaw later in the 1930s. And that is where I was not expecting to end up but where I did the Wellington Test of 1930 that takes us to Auckland, that takes us to the pioneering work of Alice Hall, who I wish to learn more about. Oh, that's brilliant. Should have a book written about her. Um, we've got a, a, a scorer in our ranks, Sarah Berman, um, who is uh, at first class level right now, hasn't done a test match, but yeah, maybe when she does, she can um, she can recognise Alice Hall in the process. That's, um, that is brilliant. Okay. Well, uh, most worthwhile. Uh, thank you, Tanya. Looking forward to meeting you uh, when we are in Wellington later in the month. Uh, Jeff, before we go to the break, been getting some wonderful feedback uh, from some of our listeners who were around when Seabus started. So we've, we've taken to telling the, the history, history story, the story of the history of Seabus in, in the last couple of weeks on the show. And of course, they're our partner throughout the course of this Australian and Southern summer on the final word about trade union members coming together in the 1980s, seeing the inequality in the retirement system. And they wanted to change it. They wanted to give workers a way uh, to use the capital in a better way to ensure there'd be um, adequate retirement free of worry. And that's where the BUS, the Building Union Superannuation Scheme, was established in the middle of a huge industrial barney. And where they landed through the negotiation to settle this uh, was the consensus model of trustees, which we still have to this day in industry super funds, working with um, employee representatives and employer representatives. And yeah, p- people like Tom McDonald and Gary Weaven, who I know was a giant in superannuation, uh, and Mavis Robertson, who worked tirelessly. Um, for this. And yeah, now there's a, a pool of funds which exceeds $3.5 trillion across the country, investing in Australia across markets across the globe, um, serving to provide Australians with greater wealth 
Uh, and it all started, you know, from an industrial dispute. And I think people have taken to that and realised that, you know, that, what's that old industry super fun slogan from little things, big things grow when they had the Paul Kelly song many, many moons ago as their television commercial. But like that is truly the case. It's an inspirational story, an innovative uh, solution to a complex public policy problem the way it should be done. Uh, and the BUS, now CBUS, were right at the forefront of that 40 years ago. So it's a great time and a great story, and we're proud to be associated with them on the final word. I said this on our Archive 99 app I dropped in the other day. Cbussuper.com.au if you want to get your super sorted out this year, or if you want us to put you in touch directly, you can do that as well. Just hit up Jeff or me, and we can handball you straight on to our pals at Super, whose um, excellent, outstanding returns aren't a reliable indicator of future performance. Cbussuper.com.au. But yeah, I feel like as we've been doing this history piece, that it's uh, yeah hit a nice note and provided adequate context to why we feel like we're a big part of what they do now and vice versa. Our story time of superannuation yeah. um, podcast spin-off will be coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be doing 180 next, episodes. Yeah. Okay, next we'll do mergers. We're going to do with all the mergers of the funds <laughs> over the years and the stouches they've had with various governments of various no, stripes and so on. No, because if, if I let you do mergers, you're going to do the Hawthorne Melbourne thing in <laughs> 96 and then it's all going to – the spin-offs will eat, eat themselves. Well, that was yeah, meant to okay, be. We, that, that should have been one of the greatest season it was series, but we, we never quite got there on the anniversary. 25th anniversary of the failed merger, which was the thing that got me politicised in the first place as a 12-year-old boy, 11, 12-year-old boy. But yes, the 99 with Jeff Allett's now in the feed. If you missed that yesterday, that's a cracking interview with a real icon of that World Cup. Took 20 wickets and for a time was the leading wicket taker in the history of World Cups until Shane Warne pulled level in the final. With one more game, because Australia, of course, made it to the decider and New Zealand didn't. But you can hear that back as you can the rest of the apps, which were released in December and January. All right, break time. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. It is The Final Word, uh, a word for NordVPN. If you haven't got your VPN yet, why not? Because uh, we've been telling you about it and we've been telling you about discounts. You know what they're good for. You know some of the things they're good for. You might know not know about cybersecurity and privacy. If you need to shield online activities from your ISP, who are sometimes getting in your way, uh, stopping you from doing things that you want to do. Uh, if you want to protect yourself from hackers who are monitoring your connection, because we know that hackers are out there hacking into politicians' Twitter accounts and watching adult content and then liking it. That's what they do, apparently, <laughs> hackers. That's the, that's the only wasn't thing that hackers the, do. Wasn't that the most <laughs> obvious thing in the world that that fucking mess of a human being was going to say that he was hacked? Um, how he served in the national parliament, anyway. That, 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 it, it was like it was as, as sure as night following day that the next post was going to be, I was hacked, I was hacked. Don't think so, big fella. Yeah, I was hacked just like all of those hackers who just get in and they like one tweet and then they leave without <laughs> causing any further damage. That's what hackers do. Anyway, if you want to avoid that happening to you, if you want to encrypt your connection to make public Wi-Fi safer, uh, you can use threat protection to scan files that you're downloading. You can block ads. You can avoid malicious links and get alerts from the dark web monitor if your credentials get into the wrong hands. I don't know who the dark web monitor is, but it sounds like a badass job, like some kind of <laughs> school kid who's going to kick your ass if you're in the hall at the wrong time. So all of that you can get from NordVPN. Right, to get the best discount off your NordVPN, uh, all you need to do is go to nordvpn.com forward slash TFW. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. 
and you'll help support our podcast. The link in the show notes, but crucially, the 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can give it a try. I mentioned, I think, on Storytime that we didn't have the account for Cam. He's got one now. Uh, so Cam will be able to use that for the rest of the um, Board of Gavaska when he's um, reporting back from Rajkot and Dharamshala and wherever the other test matches are. Right but the Rad Show Relaxo. He's... His uh, his VPN is more like a vomit private network oh, at the yeah, moment. Yeah. He's, he's dead crook. He ate something bad and he's having <laughs> a terrible time. Poor old, poor old Cam. Yes, I think he gets to Radcott tomorrow, but those daily shows will be there and they will be there on the, not the Border Kavaska. I think I described it as that a moment ago. It's, it's, not, it's definitely not that. What is it? What do they play for in the England-India? Uh, the Anthony DeMello, is that it? I genuinely don't know. But whatever it is, it uh, the next test match starts on Thursday. And England have lost Jack Leach for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. He injured his knee fielding at Hyderabad, missed the test at Vizag. So they're going to keep the three spinners and they're not going to call anyone up. What a sign of faith or show of faith in mm. three blokes who between them have played six test matches, plus Joe Root as the fourth spinner. But you know, considering McCullum said before Vizag, they're, they're considering at some stage mm. in the series playing just four spinners. Um, mm. Now I suppose they won't well, have that you, option. The, the, the Joe Root thing, I'm I'm very leery of that. Like you know, people going, "Oh, Joe Root hasn't made any runs in the series. Oh, so why? Uh, maybe because he bowled fifty overs in the first Test match. Like maybe if you've got your best batter bowling fifty overs in the Test, that's not helpful. Maybe maybe let the guy bat. He'll come good. He'll come good. You can you can sort of I think have faith that Joe Root. Maybe the week and a half of R and R. I think he would he would have a better chance of coming good if he wasn't bowling 50 overs. I'm just floating that out. There. I su- but the, the, the challenge they've got is he's become an outstanding off spinner. Um, oh, yeah. So how do you balance that out? I'm not sure what the right answer is there. But India's squad is more interesting than that for England, not not to brush over the loss of Leach, their senior spinner, which is a big deal. But with India, they don't have Rat Kohli. He's not returning for tests three, four, and five, which I think we kind of thought he would. So that that's noteworthy. Mm. And Shreyas I has been dropped. So he made 35 and 13 in the first test, 27 and 29 in the second test. But as we've remarked upon in the past, Jeff, it's it's a tough gig being the Indian batter who is yeah. out of favour with the fans. And that's clearly been Shreyas I's lot in life over the last six months or so. So despite executing a a great run out and taking a great catch in the first two matches. He's out of the side. Rajat Padadar keeps his spot, as does Safraz Khan, who's yet to play a test match. So it would suggest that either, well, it suggests they'll both play, actually, that Padadar will play mm. and that Safraz Khan will debut. That's unless KL Rahul gets back. No, get the get the big lad in. I want to want to see what he can do. <laughs> well, KL Rahul's in the squad, so is Judasia, right? So both of them mm. are subject to a fitness test before Rajkot. But if Rahul doesn't play by deduction, it's going to have to be Safraz in the side with a first-class average of, what is it, like 73 or something like that? Yeah. So he's, he's banged <laughs> exactly. the door down, it's fair to say. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's not the only- well, We were talking about him during the during the actual Border Gavaska. You know, yes. Bharat and I were talking about Safraz Khan and what he was- doing and, and why he was struggling to get picked in squads. He's finally made it into a squad. So, you know, I, 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 I want to see it. I want to see what he can do. There's another inclusion in the squad, Akash Deep, 27-year-old right-arm seamer from Bengal. He's been called up because Shami's ankles, he, you know, Shami's not played yeah. since the World Cup final. This feels serious now, right? Like if you had a, if you've gone down with an injury in, when was the end of the World Cup? November the 20th or something yep. like that. And you're still not yeah, back to bowling. 19th in the middle of February, that would suggest this is a far more serious problem than they've led on to this point. So, yeah, he's been around the white ball games, uh, Akash. He um, played in the Asia games, did well in the A-series against England. So if they want to move on and 
change the configuration of the attack. They'll have one extra seamer for that. And uh, as I mentioned before, we'll be full steam ahead with all the daily shows. I'm doing the preview with Cam tomorrow. Barat's going to jump in for a couple this week, Jeff. Uh, we've got Vish doing the post-game or post-test wraps, but Cam will be mm-hmm. the one constant throughout. So you can subscribe on YouTube. We've got our India-centric episode coming tomorrow. That won't be in the podcast feed, but we'll be on YouTube with one of the Indian press pack. And uh, you can get below the line in the comments and help argue our corner for us because, we, gee whiz, we're copping a pounding in there as we tend to do. <laughs> <laughs> as we tend to do on YouTube every day, England does well. Um, not, not a lot we can do about it, but we're all- I know, I'm, we I'm become all, English at that point, yeah, just yeah. according to the world. By default, we are now English and we are we are also crying. <laughs> all, mm. all, all part of it, as I think Will McPherson dubbed it, the cry more cup, so three more tests to go there. Speaking of India not performing as well as they would like, the Australian men, in this case the under-19s, have won another final. And, and by that I mean, if you count, the men as the 19s, the men who won the 50-over World Cup and the World Test Championship. That's three in the space of eight months. That was at Benoni Hazelhurst on Sunday, the final. So the semi-final Australia just snuck through. There was a 17-run partnership for the 10th wicket between Raf McMillan and Callum Vidler. So they just got beyond Pakistan in a low-scoring thriller, but they bossed the final, yep. really. They made seven for 253. Yep. Harry Dixon, uh, 42. Hugh Web- Weebgen, the captain from Queensland, 48. Hajish Singh, 55, and Oliver Peak, who we touched on a couple of weeks ago, just turned 17, 46 not out from 43 balls. And from there, Jeff, India, they were never really in the hump. The Australian bowlers squeezed the life out of them. The new king of Geelong, Oliver Peak. Yeah. He's, um, he's <laughs> been doing prodigious things down there in Geelong, and it's good to see a little bit of representation from G-Town in this Melbourne-centric world coming up. And, I mean, how much would you know, the ICC people must have been spitting chips that Australia got over the line. <laughs> Imagine how much they wanted that India-Pakistan, the under-19s final, would yeah. have become the proxy for every other bit of bullshit conflict. You know, meanwhile, Pakistan's just in absolute uproar at the moment, which we're keeping an eye on as well. Uh, yeah, look, it, it's they've done a great job getting the under-19s World Cup more seen, though. Like, the, the fact that you know, the ICC put a lot of money into the broadcast. They've made sure that there's a you know, professional TV broadcast going on. You can watch games, you can follow it. And so, yeah, it seems like there's there's investment in this story in a way that there would never have been with previous World Cups. They were flashing up the pictures of here's Mitch Marsh captaining the under-19s World Cup, you know, all those years ago. But at that point, it seemed like it was it was something that was a tiny little snippet in the back of the paper and no more than that. It does mean that this generation coming through will, will know more about. So just to go through the bowling innings, they bowl out India for 174. It's Marley Biedman, three for 15, Rath McMillan, four for 43, and Cal Vidler two for 35, but because we've watched a bit of it on telly and there's now, you know, feature articles being written about them, you know, we know that Harja Singh is a left arm, a left-handed bat who moved from Chandigarh to Sydney, plays in the turban. So that's an interesting um, wider observation that we're going to see more Asian young players coming through and playing for Australia than was the case in, in previous generations. Weebgen, uh, Weebgen, Weebgen uh, is um, a Queenslander right-hand bat who is now a World Cup winning captain, right? Like As Mitch Marsh did in 2010. Cam White, did in 2002. And the other one, uh, I thought, who, I wonder who captained the 88 team. It's Australia's fourth win in this format. Mm. I called Jeff Will Parker. Vesisto. Incredibly, <laughs> it, was, it was Will Vesisto. He was four. <laughs> if that. Um, but, yeah, Jeff Parker, who is the um, the Port Adelaide recruiting manager these days, um, he led Australia in, in 1988. He only went on to play 37 games himself. But what a team. Within it, Darren Berry, Wayne Holdsworth, who made the 93 Ashes squad, Stuart Law, 
who's unlucky to only play one test match. Joe Scuderi, who went on to play so many years for South Italy. Australia and also for Italy. And Alan Mullally, another two-country representative. Well, not two-country, but you know, under-19s for Australia and uh, went on to play for England in in, uh, in test cricket and in one-day cricket. So, yeah, but Jeff Parker was the leader of that 1988 side. But, yeah, like these Aussie guys that are coming through will know that Rath McMillan's an off-spinner, you know, coming through from – uh, New South Wales and Callum Vidler, who's already rapid at 18, another Queensland rep in that side. He's hitting the speed gun up in well into the 140s and he's only 18 years of age. And Harry Dixon mentioned he made runs. He's already signed with the Renegades. So, you know, like it won't be out of context when we see them coming through the Sheffield Shield and, and other competitions in, in the years to come. So, yes, uh, another trophy for Australia. And, yeah, it's been a pretty strong, think about it, last, what, 13 months that'll loop in a women's T20 World Cup win in South Africa. I think that was in January, maybe February last year. Sorry, it might be 12 months actually. World Test Championship, men's 50 over World Cup and in the other 19s as well. So, uh, yeah, uh, for all of the criticism of the structures inside Australian cricket, and it's all worthwhile, it's worth having these conversations, uh, the on-field uh, output continues to be very high. And another series win for the Australian women's team who took apart South Africa after losing that, that, that surprise loss in the middle ODI. They won the last one handsomely, 277 for nine. Australia, Beth Mooney again, as so often, 82 for her off 91. Elisa Healy made 60. There was that odd bit as well with um, the last few overs with Alana King getting like a full toss that she slams over deep mid-wicket for six, mm. swings the bat around and takes her own stumps out, hit wicket, but then it's a no ball for height and then she yeah. hits the free hit for six as well. So whatever that is, 13 off off one delivery um, while also taking out her own woodwork. Mazabata class took four for, for South Africa, but, yeah, they were, they were nowhere near it really as soon as Marizone Cup was out for a duck that was... That was just about it. Um, Laura Wolvard had already poked one into the cordon. Kim Garth hasn't made many runs this series. And then they had a long rain delay and an adjusted target, but they lost six for 25 at the end. And Alana King, a triple wicket maiden in amongst all of that to complete a pretty good day for her two Talia McGraw wickets as well. So, yeah, they're both both the T20, the three T20s and the three ODIs, they lost one. They were surprised by it and, and they absolutely mashed them in, in the decider. Yeah, Kim Garth has become that real swing ace for Australia, moving it away from right-handers. So in, in concert with, with with Megan Shute, who always brings it in, that's, um, mm. that's a very useful new ball attack from those who don't bowl at the same pace as some of their younger teammates, but they've mm. got that other – well, Garth's still young, but not as young as some of the others coming through from the WBBL. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Healy made runs. She had a bit of a crack at the media – after they lost the second game, saying that that people only write about them when they lose, which I thought was kind of interesting given that the Australian women's cricket team mm. get the greatest rails run in the history of sports media. I don't think I've ever read a negative line about the Aussie women's team. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's very little scrutiny the way that the men get, and that's like, that's a function of there being fewer people covering the team. But, you know, that's a uh, – what's the um, – newspaper analogy um dogs yeah. dog bites man isn't a story man di- mm. man bites dog is a story well the aussie team losing is that because they they win so routinely and they're lauded it doesn't they're, happen much yeah they're lauded for it i mean they're celebrated for it they win everything they they are they are an extraordinary uh, sporting team and are recognized accordingly but when they lose that of course mm. is going to be of more interest than than when they win especially when it's a side which is uh, that th- there is that financial considerable financial gap between 
Australia and South Africa. There's also this this current undercurrent of, well, is there a gap between the sides? I've seen some social media content about this this week and um, there's a debate as to whether there is one. And I'm like, well, really? Are we debating this? Of course there's a gap between mm. Australia and the rest of the world. That's a that's a triumph of the resources that have been poured into the side over the last 10 years and that gap adds to the emphasis when they don't get over the line. That's That's healthy. That's good. Um, so anyway, that's just a, a note in passing. They're, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're a very well-liked side. They're a very popular team because most of the characters in it are very likable, interesting people. So it is an odd one to get to get uptight about, although Healy does have a bit of a history of shoulder chips when it comes to criticism. The test squad for the Australian women's match against South Africa starting later in the week has been named as well. Sophie Molyneux in, a great addition there, all that experience that she brings from playing test cricket before, outstanding performance at, at Taunton back in 2019. But, yeah, she's dominated the WNCL back from that long-term layoff with a knee injury. Makes perfect sense. Lauren Cheadle's out from the squad that played uh, in India before Christmas, um, having a skin cancer removed from the back of her neck. I know we mm-hmm. haven't had the chance to reflect upon that yet, but our very best to, to Lauren Cheadle, who we've enjoyed covering the career of since she burst onto the scene as a 16-year-old way back. had a, a horror run yeah. with... You know, I mean, having this on top of all the injuries that she's That's had. Right. As yeah, some people have observed, it's surprising that you don't get more cricketers um, experiencing these problems even this early in their careers, given the amount of time you spend outside getting absolutely baked in the sun. Get well soon for Lauren Cheadle, the left armour from New South Wales. And Heather Graham's been omitted from that side, but Heather Graham will be playing some red ball cricket for there are these new fixtures that have been announced. This is a great thing. So the green versus the gold, it is by definition, domestic red ball multi-day cricket, which we've been calling out for for a decade since we started making this program. It's going to be the 5th to the 7th of March at Karen Rolton Oval. So it's not just being used as a a lead into a test match, which Mm -hmm. they've done before where they've had some state players who aren't in the national team playing for an Australian 11 or Australia A or something like that. So it's been described as supplementing and expanding Australia A program. No complaints there. But it's also an acknowledgement of player power, right? So the Australian women continue to say they want to play more test cricket, but there needs to be that level below where state cricketers get a chance. Well, they're getting it here. So Heather Graham Mm -hmm. captaining one side, Charlie Knott from Queensland captaining the other. There's some international experience in the squads. So Alana King, Maitland Brown, uh, Taylor Valamick, Amanda Jade Wellington, Darcy Brown, uh, Kim Garth, but a lot of players who wouldn't be as well known, who haven't been in mm-hmm. Australian squads before, that's for sure. So there are multiple ways they can expand upon this, Jeff. They could have you know, several of these fixtures per year. They could use a WNCL and get creative there, which is my preference to use to break the WNCL off into two groups of four and through that play three games per year as a minimum across three days. Mm-hmm. They could expand this golden green to you know, four representative sides taken from the WNCL team. So th- there are options into the future, but I guess this is the, the important starting point, if you like, that they're acknowledging that the only way they can have more uh, top-level test cricketers is by giving players the level below the chance to play across multiple days. Yeah, and, and it's it's given me a little bit of that, like, oh, our kid's all grown up, saying Charlie not captaining a team. Mm, you know, I remember mm. her being the, the new kid coming in yeah. um, to the WBBL, what, four seasons ago now and um you know and now now she'll be out there leading aside and and heather graham 
she might be at, not in the test squad, but she's uh, she's just taken Tassie into the mm. WNCL final again. once again. Mm. They're top of the table. They've got a game to play, but they cannot be caught. They're officially in. 105 from 93 balls earlier today at the time that we're recording, chasing 256 against the Vicks. It's no small chase either in, in that competition. She was out with 41 runs required, but they still had 15 overs in hand because of that scoring rate. Nicola Carey took them home, 75 not out. Lanning was out for four for Victoria earlier on. So Tasmania hunting, hunting for three in a row in the WNCL, which would be quite the thing considering what a basket case the, I mean, particularly the Hurricanes were, you know, three or four years ago. And, and they've, they've been trying to patch things together, not with quite the same level of success as the 50 over side, but the 50 over team is, you know, they've recruited well and, and they've, turned into a juggernaut. Great story for Tassie cricket. Um, we're seeing the men do so well from limited expectations. And you're right, the Hurricanes a few years ago, they, they really did become clearly the worst side in that comp because they couldn't recruit the same kind of talent that the, the WNCL team has. So, um, yeah, remembering that's a 17 competition when you include the Meteors, that they've made it to the final for three consecutive years and getting players from the mainland down there. It's a it's a wider story about how attractive Tasmania is as a as a sporting destination. So well played to them and pleased to see Heather Graham, another one of those, you know, WBBL season one players that we've always kept an eye on and always yeah. um, wanted to see take the next step. And yeah, as she's dropped out of the test squad, she's getting these wider opportunities and um, hopefully there'll be a chance for her to play more for Australia soon. One negative story uh, in relation to women's cricket this week, Jeff, and it, it does relate to Pakistan. And I don't want to overdo this today because we are committed to doing a full Pakistani political episode more widely in relation to what's going on with Imran Khan. But um, so there've been the national elections over the weekend, and remarkably, in a way, or from at least what I was reading beforehand, Imran Khan, his band of independents, because they're not allowed to use the PTI branding at the moment won the most seats in the assembly. However, um, Mm. the parties that came second and third are forming an alliance in order to form government. So that will continue to tick over. But because there was all this instability and there was no prospect of a majority leading into uh, the elections, they've made a decision as a cricket board to not, according to Daniel Rasool, who wrote an interview up during the week, to not proceed with the women's PSL exhibition games this year because they don't know who the chairman's going to be. And because they can't work out who the chairman's going to be, they can't make decisions with any... You know, Adam Holyoke did a good interview during and, the week. And because, because they couldn't give a shit. They could not give a shit about it. It is, it is the most disposable competition in the world. It's, it's one of the... One of those, you know, in, in, in a cricketing sense, it's one of those great injustices that they were, they were just about to get going with this and then politics happens, yep. Ramis Raja gets rolled, the, the head of the PCB, the, the replacements cancel the whole thing and then put on this token bullshit comp with a couple of games, which is, you know, and, and of course you have to say, well, it's better than nothing, but it's still a lot worse than what it was, what it was planned to be. And now they're just not even going to bother with the window dressing anymore because because it doesn't matter to them. They do not care about this comp. They're not... They're, they're, they're putting it, it was tokenistic to begin with. And yeah, sure, there are bigger things going on in the country than cricket. Um, but of course, it's the women's game that gets sidelined. They're not going to, you know, they, they might shift the men's thing around a bit. They might push it back a little bit, but they're not going to cancel it because they've got too much money riding on it. Yeah, that, that, all of that's right. And, and that's not to say that everyone in the PCB who, who's held roles there has that view, right? Like going back to Ramiz, he was... He was adamant that he was going to try and get this up, but of course he got rolled and, and the rest is kind of history on that front. But yeah, a reminder that the, the Pakistani national government appoints the chair and the chair has enormous authority. So the outcome of that election will dictate all. Adam Holyoke, who was a 
batting consultant for Pakistan's men during the test series in Australia this summer has done an interview which was quite revealing because he's basically said all of this. He's like, we, he said he feels sorry, sorry for the players because there is that, uh, they end up in this sort of state of inertia of sorts, um, because they Mm. just don't know what's going to happen next administratively, which will inform a lot of the decisions about what they're able to do. And yeah, as we know here, as we've learnt here this week, um, it's the women who are, aren't even going to have these three exhibition games that they had last year. For a time there, they wanted to go, earlier to beat the IPL, but now the WPL in existence, the incentive has dropped off there as well. So that was bad news during the week. And the the wider Pakistani story, as far as I'm aware, didn't feature in the MCC World Cricket Committee meeting this week, but there was plenty on their agenda. They they actually met in Cape Town, Jeff. So this World Cricket Committee, Hmm. which is a high-powered representative body, includes Kumar Sangakara as the chair, Susie Bates, Claire Connor, Kumar Dharmasena, Sirav Ganguly, Jalan Goswami, Heather Knight, Justin Langer, Owen Morgan, Ramesh Raja, the aforementioned, Ricky Skerritt, and Graham Smith. And Graham Smith do you hosted reckon, them. Do you reckon Kumar Dharmasena got uh, got a perfume bag for everybody? Do you reckon he brought a <laughs> gift bag of the uh, the scent? Remember, he's working on his own perfume range. Uh, you want to smell like an umpire and talk to Kumar Dharmasena? I doubt Justin Langer would have put it on. Don't put any of that shit on. So, yeah, but they, they do rotate that cast of people who are involved, but there's some some corporate knowledge, I suppose, through Sangakara, who's been there quite a long time and is, is a, a, a previous president of the MCC as well. So what this is is effectively a group who come together and make a strong argument with a big megaphone about lots of different things, right? And that they've got no ability to tell the ICC what to do, but it's, it's hard to ignore those names that I listed before. So what they have done is recommended a minimum of three test series from now. I reckon that's gaining momentum as a position. We've been banging on about it for mm-hmm. years. We heard Nick Hockley make positive sounds about it during the Australian summer. Well, now the MCC is as well. From 24 to 27, they want the revenue recalibrated in a needs-based model. So this goes Good down luck. to, I mean, sure, of course, but this goes down to the conversation that was being had a couple of years ago. We had Osman Samuudin on the show about this very thing. So, And similarly, in that bucket of ICC money to ring-fence some of it for women's cricket, so it's not just down to each individual full member to determine how much money goes to women's cricket that the ICC can mm-hmm. intervene there by ring-fencing some of it. They want to see the USA embrace more fully as a potential uh, TV market so they can future-proof TV revenue, which has been forecast to go down in the next right cycle for whatever reason. They Mm -hmm. want a proper revenue share approach to tours instead of home boards getting all the money. Again, this is something we've been hearing talked about for a long time, and this is important because it stands to reason that if you're a poorer country and you're going out there, sure, you get your hotels paid for and your flights paid for, but you don't come away with any of the TV money. So that's fairly logical. And this one about the schedule, they want a more equitable split in when teams are allowed to host cricket. And I suppose that goes to making sure that, say, Australia can't always cherry pick the best part of the uh, the holiday period. And it wouldn't just be about Australia, of course, but mm. making sure that other countries that might benefit from having a Boxing Day test can do so from time to time. So. Again, it's not none of this is easy, but as Sangakara says here, it's time for courageous leadership and a united vision for the global game. Whilst the opportunities for cricket are enormous, the challenges are equally great, and there must be a stronger sense of collegiality amongst full members and all stakeholders for cricket to thrive. So, Jeff, my view is that this is in keeping with the way this World Cricket Committee has been able to open its shoulders a bit mm. in the last couple of years. Uh, and long story short, more power to them on all of those points. 
Yeah, love it, love it, love a reference to the stakeholders. It's, that's what they say at the start of the Vampire Slayers Convention. A message for stakeholders. <laughs> um, but broadly, I mean, yes, the, these are, these are the things, and actually, it, it is kind of refreshing to see a group with you know with not the authority to actually put them into practice but at least the influence to be able to push for them saying these things specifically um the split rights uh, revenue thing is is something that has been talked about uh, richard gould talk, spoke about that with us mm. the ecb boss when we interviewed him that maybe that needed to be looked at because it's not it's not just that the visiting countries don't make money from the tour. It's they still have to spend. They still have to pay the match fees for all of their players. They still have to pay for the staff, the coaching staff, who to to get them signed up for the tours. They do pre-tour work, camps, and so on that they're paying for. So you know, they, if you play a bunch of matches, you've got eleven players, you've got fifteen in the squad, um, you've got per DMs, you've got all of these expenses that stack up really, really quickly that relate to going on a tour, even if you're not paying for the hotels, you're still you're still spending a lot of money in being there. So in the inequitable arrangements that we have in world cricket, then addressing something like that would make a huge difference to the boards getting uh, a little bit of money back, uh, even if it was a, a small amount, a small part of the, the overall large pie. It was a talking point during the pandemic, right, when the Windies were willing to come out to you know, Plague Island, which was the UK then before the vaccine. Not, I'm not saying that, that that was only the UK, but they came out under those circumstances and they said at the end of it, well, okay, we've done the right thing by you. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to see greater redistribution uh, than is currently the case. Well, it's not hard to do more than what it is right now, right? We saw the splits last year. I know that's a different conversation around ICC revenue, but still. And, um, yeah, hopefully there's some influence here. Sometimes hoping is the only thing you have left. Let's take a really quick break and then we have to talk about Asmatullah Omatsai. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. The final segment of our weekly show this week starts in Candy, a thrilling one-day international on Friday. This is between Sri Lanka and Afghanistan. What nearly a thrilling one day. So thrilling for performances, not not quite the end result, but just yeah. for what happened, just for how bonkers it was through almost all of it. I had it on, and it. I mean, yeah, the mm. the the overall margin of forty two runs belies how close it felt at one stage in the chase. So to set it up, Sri Lanka make three eighty one for three. Patam Nasanka. Opening the batting, 210 not out from 139 balls, 24s and 8 sixes. It's the 12th double hundred in men's one-day cricket. All of them have taken place since February 2010 when Sachin got the first, his 200 not out against South Africa. So Nasanka slots in in equal fifth. Thakur Zaman also got an unbeaten 210, the identical score against Zimbabwe yep. in 2018. So ahead of him, Rohit. Guptal, Saywag, and Gale, but all of those were between 2010 and 2015. So that there have been none fewer. of them broke the inter. None of them broke Crick Info. Um, yeah, Sachin's one's the one that broke Crick Info when he was. It was against South Africa, wasn't it? And as he was working through the last. Um, the last few overs of that game, so many people had got onto the text ball by ball coverage that the entire site went down. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, so yeah, just that that point about the. the where the glut of them have been has took my interest. So those really big scores in one-day cricket were all between 2011 and 2015. I think that corresponds with when 
there was the four outside the circle in the last 10 overs. And they went back to five outside the circle after the 2015 World Cup. And there has been a a little bit of a suppression of scores after that hyperinflation period. So this is the the highest score since Fakazaman. And it's the third 210 in one day is because Ishan Kisham also clocked to 210 uh, in 2022. So the last three double hundreds in one day cricket have all been 210. That's got... Um, future nerd pledge energy, I reckon. Anyway, so um, with all of that in mind, Nabi took one for 44 from 10 and he would go on to play his role later. Afghanistan looked cooked in the chase. They are cooked. 27 for four, 55 for five, chasing 382 uh, and Madushans hooping it around, taking wickets as we saw during the World Cup. And then walks Jeff Azmatullah, our guy from the World Cup, should have made the World Cup team. We had him in our 11 and he walks yeah. in there with the old boy Nabi and they absolutely tee off. Talk us through it. Well, I mean, just the the cleanness of <laughs> the hitting and, and as Matulo, like we've just seen him grow and grow as a player. That's that spell that he bowled at the start of Australia's batting innings when he had the ball just absolutely screaming around in Mumbai. He's got those really bright, clear eyes as well. He's, he's sort of like just pierces straight through you when he looks at somebody and then he sometimes breaks out into a big smile. And uh, But he'd never made 100 before in one-day cricket. He doesn't just make 100. He makes 149 not from 115 balls and just just takes them down. And Nabi is like, okay, cool, this is what we're doing um, and just ticks along and makes 136 off 130 himself. I mean, hasn't made a one-day 100 in a decade himself. He's 39 years old on the scorecard. Um, and, sh- you know, okay, they pull up 42 short and particularly when, once Nabi's out, you're like, well, they're, they're too far behind the eight ball to get it here. But but Azmatullah just keeps striking all the way through to the end. So even when he knew that, that they were a bit short and they weren't quite going to get there, he, he kept the attack rate up. He kept smacking sixes. Um, I mean... He, it is thrilling to see a talent um, break through like that. I think as Matula, I'm right in saying, hadn't made a half century before the World Cup and bettered his highest score four times in that tournament, finished with an 80-odd, if I recall correctly, and, yeah, now three figures. And some That's of the right. stroke play, you know... I'm watching, losing my voice. I'm so emotional about that. <laughs> That's okay. Some of the stroke play was, was Maxwell-esque. You know, that shot that Glenn plays where he... It's like the shorthand, uh, the shorthand slap hockey shot over mid-off. Yep. Um, as Matula was hitting those for six... This guy's got serious natural gifts with the ball and with the bat. He's only about 22. So watch this space on that front. And, yeah, the partnership of 242 with Nabi. Most of it they needed to go at, like, 10s to win the game and got them within 42. Sadly, the second one day was a total non-event. Sri Lanka made 308 for six. Hasalanka, 97 not out of those. And Afghanistan were all out for 153 with Hasaranga chiming in with four for not many. So it's uh, 2-0 in the series to Sri Lanka. But yes, uh, for those of us who are um, keen to uh, like continue having the conversation about Afghanistan on both sides uh, in relation to their progress as a side, but equally the inconsistency being applied by boards, um, we'll keep watching all of the cricket that they play. Well, yeah, there's there's that, that particular jar of, um, oh, you know, of the MCC recommendations. The ICC should ring fence some money for women's cricket. Well, that would include actually holding their members to the standard of having a women's team instead of, um, you know, making it illegal and making them all flee the country. So, yeah, it, it's uh, that kind of result's always likely to happen at times in Sri Lanka, the, the, the Hasaranga, get the spin going, run through them for a low score kind of thing. But you see these back and forth moments with Afghanistan. You saw it in the test match they played in Colombo as well, where, you know, they were dominated in the first innings, but then had 
that great partnership and, and were able to at least fight back into the game. They're, they're not quite the polished finish side that can finish teams off consistently, but um, we saw during the World Cup they're able to finish teams off at least uh, like often enough that it's not a, a, a complete anomaly anymore. Just swing through a bit of English domestic cricket. We're a couple of months away from the start of the new county championship season and Surrey have been busy. Jesus Christ, already. Uh, I know, I know. Um, well, we're into already. episode 25 or whatever it is of this season. We'll be into season 16 of the podcast soon. Anyway, yeah, Surrey have been busy um, as they tend to be at this time of year. Aaron Hardy is um, uh, going to be wearing the, the three feathers as he did mm-hmm. a couple of years ago in that crucial win at Scarborough where he made an important contribution over there. Well, he's going to be back for, uh, he's there from, I think I'm right saying three championship rounds and all of the blast qualification period. But before he gets there, Kim R. Roach back for a fourth stint at the Oval. He's been involved in their back-to-back pennants in 2022 and, and 2023. Kim R. Roach will play all of April, all of May, so seven rounds of cricket. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that, that there's still room for a, a big overseas signing like Kemar Roach who comes back to the one club season after season. And that's the position that Surrey are in, that they can they can command a player of his stature. But yes, that, that was the main recruitment news during the week. And off the field, it's been confirmed late last week that Colin Graves will return as the chairman at Yorkshire. That was the board confirming the decision taken at the EGM of the members about a month ago. There was this Trumpian line in, in Grave. We didn't mention on, on the show at the time that mm. the Graves used when writing to the members ahead of the EGM where he talked about like making Yorkshire great again, which is totally coded language, right? Like he'd, he'd, he'd done the whole, I'm so sorry, apologising for everything that had happened when he'd been there previously in relation to the systemic racism and the things he said last year uh, are in and around the media debate after not appearing at the hearings himself. Well, you know, yep. if you want to hear what you want to hear when you hear make Yorkshire great again, you know, uh, well, you know, it, it, it stands to reason oh, that you know what you're getting, right? I, I mean, I don't think it's even necessarily coded as uh, as much as it is just fucking daft. It, it's the kind of idiocy of somebody who just thinks that that's uh, a little innocent bit of the zeitgeist. Oh, that's just a funny phrase that people... Like, the number of, over the last... Jesus, what is it, nearly eight years now, the the number of make blah, blah, great again kind of spin-offs of it that, that you've seen across every industry, across all kinds of marketing material. Like People use it all the time. Uh, companies use it all the time. But it's, it's, it's like such a lazy, stupid thing to use if you don't actually consider the ramifications of it. Like you are, you are running a club that has been convicted in hearings of institutional racism and you're like, cool, let's use the tagline of uh, the English-speaking world's most prominent celebrity racist. Let's let's use that as our... But just because what, you're like, oh, I was just being literal about it. But it means that you've, you're somebody who's never had to think about what that means to other people, how that makes other people feel, how that, how that makes people feel excluded and threatened because it doesn't make you feel excluded and threatened because you're Colin Graves. I mean, it just it sums up everything about the problem in that one piece of absolute idiocy. The ECB said before this all played out, they'll be keeping a very close eye on Yorkshire. They fucking better because this has got, I reckon, a lot to... A lot to come, especially when you consider the financial implications, the Colin Grace Trust and all the other bits and bobs in and around this. So, mm-hmm. um, And we'll keep following it on the podcast. And uh, lastly, Jeff, um, not that we care an awful lot, but the ILT20 and continues in, in the UAE. And it's a bit of a reminder to me, the dystopian world that's ahead of us, like seeing these press releases roll in. I don't think anyone's seen a ball of it, right? I mean, I know they're probably doing okay 
in venue with getting people in. That's great, whatever. But, you know, how's this? Um, Bapara, Little and Willie wreck Warriors to give Knight Riders a seven-wicket win. Golf Giants rally to stun the Dubai Capitals by 19 runs in a low-scoring battle. Stun them, they Stunned. did. They stunned them. I mean, you know, Stunned, players yep. moving in for the finals who didn't, out. who didn't play the, you know, I mean, fine. They've got to talk up their game. They've got to talk up their competition. I, I understand all of that. But, you know, tree falling in the woods, energy to this as well where these competitions where there is so much money circulating in them but uh you know it barely it barely rates a mention or barely rates a minute of mm-hmm. watching and this is what we need to safeguard against as a global game because otherwise this will be all we have left yeah yeah the um, the the rapid fire rate of the press releases coming into like and I'm like god knows how these people get um, get email addresses that they shouldn't have or whatever. But uh, it's like, oh, cool, I've got 47 press releases in the last two days from the ILT20. Um, mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's Ravi Bapara been up to? Normally if I'm researching <laughs> Ravi Bapara, it's for a story time episode about something that feels like it happened 25 years ago or more and yet he's still rocking up. <laughs> he's bowling a few mediums and dunking a few over mid oh, on, hopefully. And look good on him. I, I have no issue with any of the players who are, who are cashing in in these tournaments. I, I suppose it's more a vibe seeing that, you know, if this is what you want the future to look like, well, sit on your hands and do nothing, administrators. If you want to change things up, you've got to take a more interventionalist approach. And I suppose that's what we were discussing earlier. And yes, it does feel like there is some um, momentum towards some changes and hopefully we'll see more of that in 2024. Jeff, uh, that's it for us today. All I have left to say is that we have um, officially closed entries for the marathon and half marathon for the tab. So if you want to run the 10K, let me know and I'll have more to report on that next week in relation to some of the some of the communal fundraising activities. The link's in the show notes. If you want to be really on it and be one of the first people to tip in some cash, if you feel like you're going to donate to this anyway, we're trying to raise 30,000 quid, get in early, help us build some momentum. Get that number, which is very low at the moment. Get it moving in the right direction and then we'll have more to say in the weeks to come about how we'll join together and do uh, some good for the Lord's Taverners who have done great work across 74 years. If you want to run a half marathon after it's closed, just do the 10K and then just go back to the start. Easy. 20. Then just do like one more on the way to the pub and you're in. Done. Done. There's going to be plenty of that. Okay, Jeff, thank you for your company as always. This has been the final word. What did I say it was at the start? Season 15, episode 25, possibly, something something like that. Many of them. Story time. We'll be back with myself and Daniel Norcross after the test at Radcott and Perth. Jeff will be doing the Perth dailies. I will be involved with Cam and Barat doing the daily shows from Radcott. Okay. Thank you, Linesman. Thank you, Ball Boys. Let's talk again soon. Ta-da. See ya. I had to get up.